Hello and welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Danielle Guntaliki. In this episode, I speak with Alan Lane, the Artistic Director of Slunglow Theatre Company, founded in 2000 and based in Holbeck, Leeds. With Alan, I talk about ethics and values at the heart of the work they do, with principles around pay-as-you-feel, making their performances in space as accessible as possible for locals, as well as their ongoing journey to do this. We also talk about the work they've been doing throughout COVID-19 and how they transitioned into being a food bank supplying over 14,000 non-means-tested food parcels. We consider the difference between being in the art sector and the charity sector, and Alan passionately and eloquently talks about the need for change and the importance of hearing from people to know how we can do better, as well as the complexities of moving forwards away from being a food bank and back to their jobs of producing theatre. How can this be done while still meeting the fundamental needs of their community? Slunglow believes that access to culture is a fundamental part of happy life. It also seems that these values are mirrored in the organisation's determination to supply food for those in needs and their refusal to question why. It should not be a conditional offer, but basic support. Throughout the trials and tests of 2020, Slunglow showed that they are truly uncompromising in their beliefs. This security and fundamental foundation of knowing what they stand for is inspirational to hear about and something I hope you'll find and feel as you listen. This episode is brought to you by Platinum Sponsors, Charity People. Here is Alan Lane speaking on being uncompromising on your beliefs. So just to start with, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, about the current work you're doing and what interests you the most in the work you're doing. Uh, yeah, um, great to be here. My name's Alan Lane. I'm the artistic director of a theatre company called Slungo which manages the oldest working men's club in Britain called the Holbeck. And uh, pre-COVID, we used to make large-scale outdoor performances with hundreds of people in, in city centres, lots of fire and running around and all that good stuff. But since COVID, we've been a non-means-tested uh, self-referral food bank and a uh, education and cultural centre. So we host lots of English as second language courses. We do a lot of teaching of cultural stuff, cooking skills and um bike maintenance and allotments and all that good healthy stuff um i suppose the thing that fascinates me about all of this at the minute is having gone through covid uh when you you can't go back to being the same because that implies there was nothing to learn from the largest event in the world of my lifetime and the idea that i'd be like right that's over so good where were we just seems to me to be insane if you're someone who who is a, in a really small sense, a cultural leader. Like I get to decide stuff culturally, that's my job. And the idea that I would make the same decisions as before just strikes me strange. But then where that leaves you is like, well, what decisions do you make now? Like, what is the point of a, of a theatre company that has seen the kind of uh, social and economic and psychological damage that is in our community? What do we do about that? And can we just go back to making shows or do we have to do something else or a combination of the two? Okay, that's oh, a long answer, wasn't it? No, long answers are good. I like long answers. Um, so yeah, so building on that, I suppose, um, I guess it's looking at how the work you do interacts with the local community, because I can know I've read different bits around really wanting to engage the local community, and especially with the food bank work you're doing, that's about making sure people have access, and especially those that are your neighbours, essentially. So maybe if you could just yeah. talk a little bit on, yeah, how you interact with the locals. Yeah. 
I, 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 we have a concept here, which I think is a really old fashioned concept. It kind of feels very middle 20th century, which is we are in service. So we get funded by the government. So we're funded by the arts council. So we, we get public money to be a group of artists because somebody somewhere who gets to make these decisions has decided that what we're doing is of interest. Um, and it's really easy, I think, to be uh, unanchored un when you are that. You like you get money, you've got no connection to the market whatsoever, uh, and you could just do whatever you like. So I decide that I'm going to make Top Cat the musical with my friends. I could do that for two years, and no one would stop me, probably. Uh, they might, but they'd let me go at least six months before pulling my collar. So um, this was something we were really aware of, and I think the more disconnected you get from real life, and by which I just mean people, um, who have to do things like live in a real world, uh, I think you become less interesting as an artist, you have less, less to say. So we were really keen to avoid that. So Holbeck in South Leeds was the place where we were like, well, we'll be based here. So even in the, first, the beginning, that was just like, we'll have our office here because then we'll have to buy sandwiches in the sandwich shop and that feels like it's really useful. Um, and then that became, that continued to grow as all of a sudden we were aware that we were experiencing these really exciting cultural things. We would go to plays and we would go to festivals and we would make this work. And all the people of Hobart weren't seeing that because it didn't happen there. And where it happened was either too far away or the public transport links don't work or just stuff gets in the way. And you were like, well, that's weird because there's these people who are based here who are seeing this part of the world that just this place isn't. So then we decided it was our mission to recreate as much of that world here as possible. So that's our that's our mission, to, to give the people of Hobart the best possible cultural life. Um, and to leverage what cultural capital, what what resources, funding we can to do that. As that grows and develops, you're like, well, hang on a minute. I'm a, I'm a very specific person. There's only one of me. Why should I decide what the people of Holbeck want? Like, maybe I'm really into opera and they love circus. Maybe I'm really into drag queens and they love football. And so then you start to, once you start to pull on that thread, you're like, well, we should ask them. And, and then once you ask them, there's a really rubbish thing that happens in the arts is you ask them and then don't do it. So you're like, no, we should ask them and then we should just do literally what they ask. And that started to, that became our world. That became our reason for getting out of bed. We were like, we're in service to this community and our job is to provide them with a cultural life and they are the best people placed to decide what that cultural life is. And if you accept that as a set of premises, as a set of logics that you can get to, when COVID hits and you realise that people don't have enough food, you, you, there isn't people go why were you a food bank you're like how could we not be a food bank um and so that's so that that's our relationship to our community we're in service to them um that doesn't mean we always agree with them doesn't mean we don't sometimes actively disagree with them because there are some crazy opinions in this community and and, and mm. there's a lot of negativity and a lot of destruction and sometimes it's our job to put our shoulder against that and sometimes it's our job to help other people do that um but yeah we're in service and we run this building that's existed since 1877 and has been owned by the community since then. It belongs to 400 members, each of whom have an equal share. And it's our job to cherish and protect that and make it the best version of itself that we can. I think that's really interesting. Like you say, it seems so logical in a lot of ways just to listen to what people are asking for or what they'd like the idea of and then facilitate that. But I think, like you say as well, it's also important to be able to push back when you need to and widen people's opinions and views and bring in different strands and things. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, 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 
we start from the point of view that artists are exceptional. Now, the only way I get to say away, I get away with saying something so obnoxious is that teachers are exceptional, uh, nurses are exceptional, soldiers, policemen, all sorts of people are exceptional. As in, the thing they do with their life, how they earn their living, changes how their day works, changes their relationship with society, changes their relationship with kids, with their families, all of that good stuff. So artists are exceptional. If you're an artist and you live your life making performance, your day begins and ends at just different times that other people's days do. They, you see the sun differently. It's just, it is profound. And therefore, why would you want to throw that away? But at the same time, participation is the only possible way we are going to get out of the quagmire we're in. We are in a binary, destructive, aggressive, distrustworthy, untrusting, bad faith world at the minute. And the only way we're going to get out is not through rhetoric, it's not through people doing speeches, it is through the act of participation, the act of understanding that if I've got to dig this hole, you're going to dig this hole with me. And at the end of it, we're probably going to be brothers and sisters because no one's ever dug a hole with anyone without coming to love them. That is the, that's the only way forward. And those two things are the kind of poles of a tent. Like you can believe in the exceptionality of the artist. If you, if you, want, a, if you want to watch a play, you want the best same as if you want to go watch football you want to watch Ronaldo play football <laughs> if you want to play you want to see the best people have spent a lifetime learning how to do it but you've also got to leave enough room there for the people of a place to feel like they own their theatre so if someone comes to us and says I think you should something they do all the time I think you should put on more drag queens I will book you the best drag queen I can I think you should put, there's this comedy I saw it was about the bible alright mate I, I'm going to put that on I'm probably going to put on a queer cabaret the next night just to make sure that we don't balance tip the balance <laughs> in one way or another but everybody gets what they want that's a really important mm. point here and one of the people who gets what they want is me so some of the program is by a man who spent 20 years making theatre who has a different sense of what theatre can be than other mm. people but equally we're just about to um start a project with a local primary school uh who are uh are, we're they're big heroes of ours the local primary school they do great work and they, they've selected a group of kids to come and help program the theatre. So we're going to be, so like our new management structure is 12 uh, 10 year olds. And I'm very giddy about that because what they want is a completely different thing. Um, and, and they're likely to want really exciting stuff. There's no way that this tired old brain is ever going to come up. with. Mm. Um, and that philosophy runs through everything we do, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it keeps things fresh, but also there's a strange like, harmony by the sounds of it in terms of, if one person asks for one thing they also have to accept that someone else can ask for the complete opposite boom everybody gets what they want and nobody gets to stop other people getting what they want and mm. it sounds so daft my five-year-old son gets it but actually uh that's really difficult it's, it's you know in the moments here and, and you know we are we it's a difficult time it's a difficult community this is a mo this is a a uh fracture in the culture war where we are they're, they're, you know these things aren't uh, theoretical or philosoph philosophical for us they're real they're about hang on a minute who gets to use the room upstairs and our philosophy is everyone mm. because it's it's held open by our money and our cultural capital so everybody gets to use it and it's really important that everybody gets to use it not just that person or that person or that type of person or that type of person and actually what, what we discovered is that people don't want very much when you say to people or oh, do anything you want what do you want they don't say stuff they don't ask for the for a spaceship they just ask for stuff and you're like yeah hey, we'll do that mm. the thing that really exercises them is when they see people getting what they getting something and they're like hang on a minute same as our food bank everybody gets food anyone who asks for food gets food same food well hang on a minute why is he getting it what do you care? You've got yours. Mm. Well, yeah, but he's, I've seen him. He buys cigarettes. I don't care. Like, 
he, everybody gets food and he, and, he, and he exercises them much more. He's never really had anyone, not anyone serious, come back and say, I don't like the food you've given me. But we've had dozens of people say, I don't understand why you're giving my neighbours this food. And you're like, because they asked for it and we promised we would. And the same with the culture. You can use the room upstairs. Yeah, but I don't like that they're using the room the night before. Mm. What do you care? You didn't want it that night. Mm. You don't care. They do care. They care a lot. Yeah, quite a complicated space to navigate in terms of, like you say, I suppose it's bridging some of those cultural differences at the same time of saying and creating a, an air of acceptance in a lot of ways. Um, something I want to touch on of what you're saying around the, the government funding that you have, as I suppose for our listeners, they're often probably coming from a charity space where resources are that bit tighter. There's such a competition for funding and things. I suppose it'd be interesting to get your take on how people can still build in this element of this is what we stand for. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it, even when they're short on those resources and they don't necessarily have that same flexibility, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think the, the one of the really um, interesting things for us in the last 14 months is moving into a, a more social care um, environment is the people in the arts have said, and with, and with you know, with real uh, justification that they're badly funded. And then you get to social care and you go, lads, you have seen nothing yet, my friends. Um, I, I was gobsmacked at how much the council thought it would take to run a food bank in comparison to actually how much it takes and how much, you know, that we would spend as much on one night of cabaret as we run a food bank for four months for two and a half thousand households. Oh, I mean, wow. it's extraordinary, the difference. The discrepancies there, and, and that can be and that can be true, whilst at the same time, I don't know anybody in subsidized theatre who is 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 well paid or, or doesn't work. You know, it, it, both those things can be true at the same time. I think um, there are definite times, we're 20 years old, this company, and we've had regular funding for eight of those. And so, you know, I, I'm still, not all the team were here in those times, but I remember when we weren't paid. We were just, you know, we would share food together. And that, that is a traditional arts beginning. Um, it's not right. I'm not suggesting that it's any great glorious apprenticeship. I'm just saying that for 12 years, you're not realistically going to get paid. So you work in, I worked in a pork pie factory in prisons for a long time whilst I was there. So I, so I don't say this from a point of view of like, and I've got all the gold in the world, but it's definitely the case that I start the year with £185,000 to pay all our salaries. And that's because the government think that's what we should have. And, and we turned that into probably about three or four times that uh, through various kind of end incomes. Um, I, I think that regardless of how much money we had, we would have a set of values um, at the heart. They wouldn't be values around, oh, I believe everyone should be paid this and that, because that's just not true of us. There's been times when we haven't been paid that and we still existed and we still made the work because like an awful lot of, well, like both the worlds we're talking about, it's a vocation and therefore you're going to stop doing it even when it stops making sense. You're going to keep doing it even when it stops making sense. Is that I think the values are around um, lines that you won't cross, things that you won't do. So here for us, that's about the marketplace. So we are beyond the market. Every single thing we do is pay what you decide. Mm -hmm. The idea that you get funding to exist beyond the market and imagine new ways of being and then you just use that money to generate more income through a box office is obscene to me i'm like well that's a waste of a golden opportunity a real privilege that i don't think is going to ex exist for much longer and if we're the last generation to have it why would we waste it on this nonsense um and i think that those types of principles we would exist even if we didn't have money and i suppose my challenge is to to any other organization is what are yours like where, what are the ones how, how where would you go if um, your resource pad uh, starts to shrink and shrink and shrink, where, yeah. where is that? 
what we call here the last hill of beans. So, you know, where, 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 do you, where do you retreat no further from? What is the hill you're going to die on? Mm. Um, and, and that has changed for us over 20 years. That's developed. In fact, it's developed over the last 18 months because the world's changed and therefore our response to it has to change. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think, um, I suppose, just to build on that a bit is around like the advice that you'd give to others that are trying to put ethics at their forefront. And like you say, if they do have that shrinking, shrinking amount of money, and how much of where your focus is coming from what you're surrounded by. So like you say, the whole Beck is in an area and you're keen to make sure your locals can access you. I'm assuming that to some extent drives why you want to make sure it's accessible and that they can reach your services. I suppose it's looking at what, it, how could other people look at their ethics potentially or kind of not pick and choose because it's not about one being more valuable than the other, but in a resource limited space, how do you maybe prioritize? What are you for? I think there are, there are, there are, there are I mean, any, any artist will turn themselves inside out to get a pot of money in the right context. So, Oh, are you excited about making? I've made so many plays about rugby. I can't tell you. I didn't know anything about rugby, but there was just a lot of money around. Like these tournaments often have plays attached to them for reasons that I don't understand. I'm like, oh yeah, God, yeah, I really love rugby. It's rugby league. Oh, rugby league. Oh, for the proper form of the game. I have no idea, but I made a perfectly good, uh, a, a good play because the, the, that's not the hypocrisy. The, that, that's not the hill I'm willing to. I'm like, I pretend to like rugby league. Actually, what we made there was a a play about songs sung by rugby fans and in actual fact tracked the kind of political um, course of those songs through. We made the, the absolute, the play that you absolutely would expect us to make. The fact I still didn't know anything about rugby league by the time I finished is no, there's a difference between being flexible and alive to the moment and having values where you go, well, actually we believe in the power of storytelling. So we genuinely believe you change the world through story. Well, we know this because people will die for a story. And if you don't think they do, then you've never seen a soldier cling onto a flag, which is nothing more than a, than a story. So we know that to be the case. So if there's an opportunity for some people who, uh, for example, might not go to the theatre because they're really big rugby league fans to listen to one of our stories. You best believe we're going to tell them it. So, so I suppose I draw the distinct. Whereas there's there's a fleetness of foot there and a kind of cynicism of like, yeah, rugby league, I'm into it. But there's also the core value of well, I know we're about this. So, if the government decides, which they have at the minute, that they're all about the Northern Powerhouse, well, that's great because actually one of my core values is one of our core values is that we're based in the north and we couldn't be based anywhere else we are we are brash and we are hard and we are generous and we are a number of adjectives that we've come to associate with the great north i have no problem sitting alongside uh an agenda that's held by other people and by people who i might not agree with on anything else now if there was something to do with a hostile environment well i that would that's that that's that's a bridge too far i'm like no i'm not interested in your in that policy that policy is cruel and so i draw those distinctions where mm-hmm. I'm incredibly cynical. I'm incredibly, you know, people keep saying, you're so entrepreneurial. All I've done for 20 years is lose millions of pounds of public money. So yeah, sure, if that's entrepreneurial, then I am your guy. But I, but, but I will hit any gap that uh, achieves our agenda, mm. no matter who I have to be friends with. But I have to know what my agenda is before that. Otherwise, you lose yourself in the storm. Otherwise, you're like, oh, hang on, why are we doing this? And, you, and it's and I've seen it with social care funding in the last 18 months. They go, can you do this? And we don't, hang on, what? Um, mm. Oh, that's not what we do. We're not really equipped to do. Oh, well, it's quite a pot of money. And, and oh, the one I love with social care, they go, it will pay for staff time. And you're like, yeah, but what is the point of staff time if they're all doing something we don't know how to do? I just end up hiring more and more staff. And so... 
I think that setting your own agenda and, and really understanding your values and then going, well, actually in this, in this, I've had a government for 12 years now that I don't really feel I can agree, I can agree with on anything. However, I really will take that money. If, if all I'm required to do is do, or if I can find a way to manipulate that agenda, of course I will. And I don't see any hypocrisy in that, but that mm. comes from, although I understand that other people do, um, but that comes from really understanding what we're for. Um, and therefore we know we just instinctively know um we, i suppose uh, all of the all i've said is pretty easy for us the really difficult moment was when we made a show and um we did it with bp money and that was a that was a that was a harder edge we were like oh hang on because it feels like we shouldn't do this and actually when we did the kind of three three column analysis on it when we really sat down and looked at it we went yeah we don't have a problem with this we just want to have a problem with this because we want people to like we want a certain type of person to like it and that was a much harder decision we were like okay all right well then that's where we are but we could do that because we knew what we were for that's and our agendas um you know you mentioned about the the three column thing is that a is it an actual thing yes so <laughs> um so so uh it's an, an analysis about um it comes from the army it's analysis about uh, you have a input and a factor and an output so uh for example, you get money from BP. Uh, that's the input. Uh, the, the thing to consider in there is environmentalists are going to hate you and uh, uh, and attack you. Uh, what, uh, I mean, in a I mean, in a non-pejorative sense, criticise you. There you go. Uh, and that that uh, as a company that believes in living beyond the market, we, we have all sorts of leftist principles, and that that actually would damage our relationship with some allies. And the output of that is you could decide not to do the show, or you could. Can you can you find other ways of developing those relationships? Is it justifiable? And, and then you you go back round. So yeah, it's just okay. a form of um, uh, a, sort of like a risk management. It's just uh, looking at what are the consequences of the actions you're going to take, and can you live with them? One mm -hmm. of the things we talk about here is we take a lot of risks. We just own the risk. We're like, yeah, that's a risk. It can happen. So when it happens, it still hurt. It still has the consequences. But what you can't be is just going, oh no, 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 no. Mm. you knew this could happen. Wrote it down. Um, so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good point about the, and it links back to the principle that you guys have of being uncompromising on your beliefs, doesn't it? In the sense of, you know, exactly what you're about and you know where your markers are and your lines and what you're drawn yeah. and what you're willing to do. Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you. Um, so in terms of representation is something that you guys at Slunglow publish very openly. Uh, I thought it was really yep. a really cool thing to do. Um, and how did you make the decision to do this? And what impact do you think the transparency has? Or how do you, you kind of touched on this slightly, how do you think it centres the work you're doing to be that transparent but representative? So, um, so we have a problem in the art sector, which is we don't look like the country we're in. So uh, the art sector, like an awful lot of sectors, but I, that's not my problem today. My problem is the art sector. The sector I'm in is predominantly white. Uh, is predominantly, uh, it's actually not predominantly man, but it's, 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 it's uh, positions of authorities are often male. Uh, it's, it, it, it's preposterously public school. Uh, it's like statistically improbably in public school and with a really heavy bent towards Oxbridge and, and some other universities. And so we, what we have is cultural gatekeepers being um, the establishment or people who are now a part of the establishment. And we could argue all day long about how bad that is or how good that is and what it does and everything else, but, um, but it, it strikes us as profoundly unfair. And the, and the market does some stuff. So where the market is really hungry, it, it, it tends to have an influence. So we see football players, for example, football players tend to be incredibly diverse because they just pick the best football players. 
because that's what the market does. It's really ruthless. The arts don't work like that because um, how do we know I'm good? We don't. Mm. We don't. We just don't. There's a load of people who have confidence in me. Um, that's not the same thing at all. Those people might have com- confidence in me because I sound and look like them and they go, oh, cool. Uh, I might not be any good at all. Um, and it would probably take them about 15 or 20 years to work that out. I'll be honest. I've done some amazing shows. I've done some terrible shows. And I promise you the, the terrible ones were not given very good marks. Uh, were given very good marks by national newspapers. And the really amazing ones were not given very Like the idea that uh, a reasonable um, measure of art, uh, culture is a mark out of five in a national newspaper is ludicrous. So we don't know. So that's a real problem. And at the same time, we have loads of people who are completely disengaged from society or are angry at society. Actually, that's not fair. They're not disengaged. They're engaged and they're angry about it because on television and in theatre and in all sorts of ways, they do not see themselves reflected. And the people who have any sort of power, and I run a pub in South Leeds, so I am not the artistic director of National Theatre, but I still have. I'm talking to you. I talk to, you know, 10 people a week. They record my words. They put it out there. I have some responsibility. It is a really complicated problem and it is a vicious and it is a cruel problem because at its base there are children in Holbeck who will not have access to the uh, opportunities the, the the horizons of children in name your favorite place where that's not the case and actually at its heart the system not people just the system thinks that's probably because the children in Holbeck are scumbags and they don't deserve it and even if you gave it to them they wouldn't know what to do with it and that the system requires that and it's cruel it's unbelievably cruel. And it's only not cruel because we don't look at it. <laughs> we don't look at it, it's not cruel. And that's true in the adult where we just don't give opportunities to people. So our commitment, and this is an incredibly crude solution. It is, it's not a solution. It's just the best we can come up with now is that we across every single part of our organization will look like the city we're in. So we look at how many black and brown people there are in Leeds and across every part of our, so not just the easy part to do, but every but the, the the parts with authority, the parts with spending capacity, the artistic parts, technical parts, we will look like the city. Now, because we print that and we say it, it's, it's a quota. Quotas are very unpopular because they're really crude and because we think, well, we shouldn't need a quota because surely if you need a quota, you're racist. Well, as a sector, we're not hitting that quota mark. So maybe we need a quota. So we just make a commitment. And because we make that commitment publicly and then we publish the data, if we didn't hit that, uh, we would be found out. And because we live in a very competitive, you were saying before about social care being competitive, we live in a very competitive work in, uh, world in the arts. If we didn't hit that, someone would say something and they would say it loudly. And I, my absolute expectation would be that we would be immediately dragged in social media. And that may or may not be the end of the company, but it certainly would influence how I spend my next few weeks. So we sort of set our own ambush up and say, well, if we don't hit this. So what it means is, in its worst case scenario, I get to, uh, I can't remember, it's it's the financial year. So I get to like January and I've got two months left. Oh no, I haven't hired enough black writers. I would have to go out and hire some black writers. But you don't let it get to that because Mm. you're smart and it's an ambition. It's not someone has made me do this. This is something we believe. So we make sure that if we don't know enough um, actors from a certain background that we really want to make sure is, then we go and find them. We're proactive. We're we're sometimes aggressive in going and finding people and going, come on, mate, let's do this. Because um, if you do not see yourself reflected in the cultural output of a, of a country, you cannot belong, you cannot feel like you belong to that country. Mm. And we know this to be true here. We're in South Leeds. We come from Beeston. We come from the place the 7-7 bombers come from. And we, we also... 
I, I'm, a, I'm a reserve army officer in Batley where a white supremacist stabbed together MP. That's what happens when the culture doesn't work for everybody, which isn't in any way to abdicate those people's responsibility for their actions. So it's important. This, this stuff matters. And the only way you can, I think, uh, make sure you're doing the right thing is say what you're going to do, tell everyone, then do it and see if they're really angry about it. <laughs> and if they're not, you're like, oh, maybe that works. So that's okay. our, it's a crude solution to a crude problem. So it seems like you kind of set it up so you held yourself accountable in so many ways, as in, like you say, set yourself up to be ambushed. So if you didn't do it, then there'd be certain consequences. But hopefully then from that pressure in some ways, that would lead to an internal shift potentially. So say your motivations hadn't been that way inclined initially based on even just on the funding. So you needed that and then you've got that. And then hopefully that culturally changes the, the way you run and then... Yeah, you, you, you change. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you change your mindset so that actually one of the measures. So we were talking before, like, how do we know we're good at art? We don't. So you can't measure it, but we do know that one of the things. So um, one of the things that's important to us is that we look like our society. So you can measure whether we're good at that or not. And we and we, you know, obviously we we want to make sure that we're reaching all the parts of our community and you can measure that and these are things that are matter to us whether we're good at making art or not we'll have to just be something that we're never quite sure about but we can be absolutely certain that over a year this this company looked like its community mm. um, because we measured it and we did and we're like great doesn't mean that next year we don't have to keep working just as hard to make that happen and because the reasons why we wouldn't look like our society are big reasons they're causal links they're to do with the employment sector the education sector about institutional racism all sorts of big heavy stuff but what we're trying to demonstrate here is five people with some money in their pocket can overcome those you've just got to really want it and then work hard at it um and so far i think i mean it's, it's the third year now and so far we've hit our targets I have also some amazing friends who are leaders in this type of thinking who tell me that quotas are not the way forward. And I go, I absolutely hear you. Just tell me what is. And until someone can come up with a better idea, we're going to keep doing this. Mm. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Um, and then I think next, just probably linking to that. So around equality, diversity, inclusion, which have been spoken about a lot in the last year. Um, and it's obviously quite vital for the charity sector that's kind of acknowledged that there's there's a problem around some of those things, especially uh, looking at institutional racism and things. Um, how do you think Slung Low focuses on EDI and um, what challenges have you faced? So I know you've mentioned the quotas being one part of that. Is there some other things you do? Yep. Um, and then I know also on the website you've mentioned around the space not being physically accessible for people with physical disabilities. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, I think we start from a point of view um, if you're a storyteller, if you believe that stories can change the world, and they really can, we haven't got time to get into why I'm right, but I just trust I am, uh, then then you have to make sure everyone's reflected, because otherwise otherwise you're telling, or your story is doing something that you didn't necessarily, I mean, unless you're a fascist, in which case, sure, crack on, knock yourself out, but we're not. So, so that's where, so EDI comes from our point of view of going, well, if we're going to do our job well, if we're really going to change the world, then, we need, then it needs to be reflected, because... Um, I have a whole series of cultural references that you are not going to get and you have a whole series of cultural references that I am not going to get and we're only two people and we're probably in the grand scheme of things reasonably similar reasonably so we're not even talking about polar opposites here and then um, so that's where we come that's 
before we get to quotas, before we even get to a political context, we're just talking about the bread and butter of our job as storytellers. We need to make sure that we're working with the most diverse group of people because we want to be able to draw on any and all voices because we're storytellers. And and that's that makes better stories. So it will be, you know, gonna make burgers, you need some chefs, you're gonna make stories, you need as many different types of storytellers as possible. And um, where it becomes and then and then the quota thing is about us saying there are no excuses. I've never met anybody in the arts who was a racist. Uh, no, I retract that. I've never met anyone who was consciously actively racist. And that's because, as you said, this kind of racism is structural, the, ra the racism is subconscious, the racism is embedded so deeply that they don't even know they're doing it. I don't even know I'm doing it. I'm not advocating responsibility. So, so you put those kind of those markers in, so you go, well, hang on, this will, this will keep me at least on a base level. And therefore there are no excuses because I can find a million, you know, that idea of like, well, I hired the best person for the job. Cool, dude. But you hired seven people who look just like you and went to school with you and your brothers at some point, man, you've just got to stop telling yourself that lie. You hired the best person for you for that job because actually it can be quite tiring working with different people. It's hard to manage different people. It's really, it's, can I say this? I don't think I can. There are a number of challenges around child, uh, around children. I have a young son. It makes it more difficult for my team to work with me because, because it just does. And that's that's good. That's to be embraced. It makes us it makes us a richer, more a stronger team. So you no excuses because those things are pernicious. They're subconscious. They're unconscious. They're in the structures. Our biggest problem is that we inherited a building that is called a working men's club and has been around since 1877. So other, so you, you can just imagine, I mean, you can just have yeah. the people say, you need an anti-racist. And I said, no, I just need to stop people being racist. I'm not even there yet. We're like, as a building, we're not at the point where we're being proactively, we're just, we're just stopping the rot. Mm. And where that is most obvious is the physical shape of the building. This is a building that's been around since 1877 and doesn't have a, a wheelchair ramp. It does now. We've just we've just paid to have one put in, but we're to, and but it's a building that's full of asbestos because that too is historic. So every time we do anything, it costs us twenty thousand pounds just to remove the, the stuff in the walls that's going to kill everybody. So putting a lift in is a is an ambition for us. It, we've raised an unbelievably large amount of money to do it, and every time we do it, asbestos stops us. No excuses. That's still our responsibility. But we've been here. Uh, we've been here two years since 1877. What I find extraordinary is that a building could be so specifically for a group of people, a mm. certain type of person. We're not even talking about white people. We're talking about white men of a certain age who like doing one of three things. And and the build, you know, when you say like, I don't understand how can racism and sexism be structural? <laughs> like it's in the it's in the walls. I mean, it's like literally these rooms are built for certain types of people. You can't get a wheelchair in here. Ironically, and this is the this is a sign of how internalized this stuff can get is that even though they're all in their 70s and will soon need wheelchairs, the members of this club still resist the idea that anyone would need to make it accessible. So because these values are greater than any one individual. And so the, mm. the only way that you can, can shift them is by no excuses. The, this metric has to be met. And for us, that lift is, is the big one. We, you know, we, we do, we operate beyond the market. We, we, actively bring people in i think our track record in, in the diversity and the full meaning of the word of the people who come here is really impressive but we fail because there is still members of our community who can't come to i've got board members who can't come to board meetings in our main space 
because there's no wheelchair access. And they quite rightly are like, you're not carrying me up those stairs, Alex, and now we have a, well, we have a problem. And that's right. And, and the only way that we'll keep the momentum for the change we need is that they hold our feet to the fire. And that's the other thing is, is that uh, we have a number of advisory boards and they're all friends. They all love us dearly. And they're all incredibly critical when we mess up because it's the only, those are the people who really hold our feet to the frame. We lose their support and then we lose everything. And so that's another part of it, I think. That's really, yeah, I think that's a, a good bit of advice as well in the same breath advisory boards, because like you say, some people, you can't represent everyone in one workspace necessarily. So the idea of having advisory boards where people do hold you accountable, but for your best interest. And I think it was interesting as well, what you touched on around, you're not in a position to be anti-racist yet because you've just got to get to the point of not allowing racism or people not being racist. And I think that's an important thing that um, organizations and charities have to acknowledge of where the position they are now, not to take away from having a vision for the future, but just acknowledge where we are now and what we need to be doing to kind of stem that. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's an idea in the arts of best practice, and and that best practice can't be universal because if it is, all that happens is we ignore people. So it's it's just easier to not have a theatre in this environment in this community, and then you wouldn't have these problems, which is how we've, which is how we got into the mess in the first place. So, yeah, it's 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 ugly work making sausages, but if you want sausages, you still have to do it. Mm. Yeah, so something else I wanted to touch on as well is um, around the way that you encourage and foster the engagement with the public. So um, obviously, like you said, um, the pay as you feel sort of thing, that kind of principles Mm. really fosters that kind of engagement of it's for anyone. Is there any other ways that you do that or any other examples of things? I think it follows on from what we were just talking about. There's there's, there's ideas of best practice and and those ideas have to be location specific. So in terms of our marketing, we know that the one thing that works here is paper and Facebook. Well, we've got an unbelievable Twitter following, but it doesn't ever tell anybody about anything. It just talks to the arts community internationally. We've got an Instagram and that's lovely, but no no one's ever booked a ticket off our Instagram post. But if you went, if we went now to a kind of leading arts marketing forum, they would tell us that, that the future is, and and and, the, and I'm sure the future for them is, but, but, but a one size fit all uh, solution doesn't work. Uh, except for in the in the in the mean and the mean in this country is a relatively wealthy middle class white family mm. going to see so we already know that's how we end up in trouble so our so our thing here is to be constantly reinventing so if there's a problem rather than finding the pre-existing solution and applying it to it we don't know what is the problem what is needed and that gets us into all sorts of problems but it's the reason why we exist like we do and some of the things that we do around we get we have a company wage we all get paid the average wage of the nation we're all on buyouts any profit that we make from big shows goes back into it there's all sorts of things that we do that have come out of not out of any great moral position but a what's the problem well this is the solution and people go you can't do that you go you can you just have to be willing to put up with the consequences of it and we are willing to put up the consequences so in terms of engagement what that means is we do it uh, I've just forgotten her name. It's an amazing theatre director who, who talks about if you want new audiences, so she's specifically talking about black audiences. If you want them across the threshold, you do it hand by you do it hand in hand. You literally do Dawn. Uh, you literally do it uh, hand in hand. So and they, and people say you can't do that. You can't physically escort every. You go. You can. You just have to expect less audience. Like you're just going to have an audience of twenty. And it that's true here. When we moved in, we obviously had people who liked us and they came anyway. But people lived across the road were like, who are these idiots? So we would go and knock on each door 
for 20 minutes until we run out of time and then and slowly but surely now if you came here you'd be like oh wow all sorts of different types of people are going, yeah, how did you do that? Knocked on the door. What? Well, mm. baked my cake, took my slides, or whatever is necessary. And and the point we would get, but you can't possibly scale that up. Well, no, you can't, but I don't mm. want to. I'm not running the National Theatre of Great Britain. I'm running yeah. the whole book. And, and whoever's listening to this will be doing exactly the same. I don't believe the chief executive of Oxfam is listening to this, but I bet the person who is listening to this is like, well, I'm trying to fight my battle in my little corner of the world. And they will know you do it hand in hand. You do it person to person, and you hope that you've got enough energy to get that, the diversity of those people uh, in a, it's an actual geographical sense. So like, yeah, you just keep going until, mm. because those first people, they become hand, they become other hands. They mm. go out and they bring you back and you're like, where have you come with? Oh, hello. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause I think that's something that comes up in the charity sector quite a lot around hard to reach communities or difficult to engage. And that those kind of notions that I think are probably more problematic than they are beneficial anyway. Um, so yeah, it's interesting. Like yeah. you say, you have to adjust what you're doing to, to bring them in and support that. They're nearly always hard to reach because someone who sounds and looks just like me has told them something in the past and then not followed through on the promise. That's what we found. The reason why there are people who don't want to come to the theatre, even when it's free, is because someone who sounded and looked just like me told them a load of nonsense in the past and they got let down and, and that kept happening. And you've got to break that cycle, which means yeah. you have to keep your promise and you have to do it eye to eye and they have to trust you. Yeah, trust. Yeah, that's a massive thing, I think. So as we hopefully come out of COVID, um, there's a lot of discussion around building back better and a new normal. Um, I know you touched on this at the beginning around obviously can't just go back to how things were. And I think hopefully for lots of people, that's not the intention because I think it's exposed so many issues that going back to how we were seems like a bit of a unjust to those issues that have been kind of illuminated. Mm-hmm. But um, how do you think people or charities can kind of create spaces to continue or try to be more un- uncompromising on their beliefs and values? despite the difficult times we're in or difficult times we'll still continue to go into? I think it's, I think, I think there's a, there's a, there's a mutual challenge for both the, the charity sector and the, and the art sector in that um, we're getting squeezed. Like it's definitely been the case that the, the various actions by central government over the last few years has looked to, for, for the arts to have a less political role. And that's still definitely true in the charity sector. Um, and then we have, you know, if you're, if you're fighting food poverty, um, you can keep giving away loads of bread. And we have literally, we've given out 14,000 loaves of bread in the last 14 months. But um, that's a finger in the dam. Uh, anybody who runs a food poverty charity knows that if they're going to stop food poverty, it isn't going to be by giving people bread. It's by going further upstream, working out what the problem is and fixing it. And actually... Uh, and that and that's true in the arts as well. I and mean, both both as a campaign and as as arts kind of cultural dem- people who believe in cultural democracy. That's why are these people not coming? Oh, it's a problem. Let's fix it. And and those organisations are coming under huge amounts of pressure. Increasingly, we've seen some board removals um, in the arts sector where the government have just imposed and said, "No, these people who believe these things will not be on boards." That's an unbelievable amount of political. That is a a profound existential threat to your organisation and certainly to your job. Um. And if we're going to get through this, it will be by making the argument direct to the public and then probably paying the consequences of our positions. And that is going to mean some people are going to lose some jobs. And that is terrible. I have a five-year-old son. and But there are some things, there are some hills in which the, like the whole point of the hill is to die on it. That's why it's the hill you die on. And, and I think we're fast getting to the point where that is the consequence of, of understanding our role in society is that 
there are some there are some absolutes that are coming up down the line. We're in the middle of a culture war. This is absolutely undeniable, I think, on either side. We are in the middle of a culture war, and the and the and the war is for the kind of cultural soul. What are what are charities for? What if if you believe in if you believe in the it's a local charity around the corner from us that deals with loneliness of, of, of old people. You want to fix that? Then that's a political issue. It is a it is a it is about the fabric of our society. Not party political. It's not about whether you vote for mm. him or her or whatever else. It's a political issue. It's about how we treat old people. If you are not willing to get into the political forum and talk about that, then you're all you're ever going to be is a band-aid. You're going to be someone who can sit on the end of the phone and talk to old people. And that's but it's that's hard work. And, and we've done it for a while now. And we're happy to give that up as soon as we can because it's tough and, it, and it's exhausting. But we're not a we're not a we're not a charity in that sense. That we're not a food poverty charity. If we were, we wouldn't be giving away bread. We'd be working out what was broken with our society that there are children who simply do not have enough to eat. One of the wealthiest countries in that, and and the right to do that is being questioned. So we're not even at the point where we're arguing about whether we have the right solution to child poverty. We're just now arguing about whether you have the right to make that argument as a charity. That fight is worth it. That fight is the is the hill you die on because if you lose that one then you are someone who tries to find cheap bed and give it to poor people. And I have spent 16 months doing that. It is a fool's errand. I have spent tens of thousands of pounds doing that. It is it is Sisyphean. You will never solve the problem by plugging a hole with bread. We have to, we have to look at the fabric of our society. And if charities aren't doing that, then what? Newspaper columnists? Who are you expecting to come and, and save you? It's, mm. it's those leaders, those cultural and social leaders who will make the difference. And they're being browbeaten and they're being bullied into keeping quiet. And we need leaders who are willing to not keep quiet, understand the consequences of not staying and then still pay the price. Because otherwise, um, fixing the problem with loaves of bread, and I promise you that will not fix the problem. Yeah, I think that speaks to a bigger question and maybe maybe another conversation as well in terms of charities and politics because I think there's been long long debates around charities needing to be quite neutral and not involved and not engaged in that space it's not for them and actually um there's arguments for the fact that charities represent voices they're they're people they're individuals their lived experiences and that needs to be accounted for yeah and they're and they're looking to, to I don't know a single charity that isn't looking to make change and change is unpopular amongst people who like the way the world is at the minute that's not a party political point of view. That's just a fact. Like if you're happy, like in the, in the art sector, we often put people have done really well out of the current society, uh, society on boards and then wonder why arts organisations aren't leading societal change. And it's like, dudes, because all the all the people in charge are already really happy with the way things are. And they believe, because for them it's true, that you can succeed in the current system. Well, yeah. You're born to a certain family, you go to a certain school, you go to a certain university, you can succeed in this. So, of course, people don't feel, those people don't feel, all of them, the impending rage of the need for change because of its in cruel injustice. Because what are you talking about? I did fine. And that's it. And that's how we measure, you know, it's who we reward. It's how we how we publicly reward them. And then we give them authority. And that that's got that in the arts. That's the next big change. We've got to stop looking to lords and ladies to tell us how we'd like the world to be different. Those people are absolutely fine with the way it is at the minute. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, thank you. Um, and then I suppose another one is what do you feel like you've learned from your experience of running the food bank? I know you've touched on it in quite a few of the answers already, but um just as like an overview. Um, so what do you feel like you've learned from your experience in running the food bank and supporting people in a time of crisis? And how will you take this forward into your work? 
Yeah, I think I think what we've learned is that um, I, I um, we thought we were pretty good at kind of engaging with our community before this, and then we started delivering food. And we used to deliver a flyer to every single household public three times a year, like by hand, to kind of get into the habit of walking around. We've done that for years, and then we were delivering food, and I was like, "Where the hell is this street?" And it was like Harry Potter's nine and three quarters platform. It would just appear, and I'd be like, "What are you talking? I'm sure what?" And that just kept happening and happening. And I'm sure. You know, if something else came along, it would. But it feels like we have absolutely knocked on every single door in this community now, and that that feels profound, and it feels like it should change us. Um, we've got a big problem at the minute, which is the food bank can't continue forever. Like it was never funded anywhere near what it cost, and we've just simply run out of money. Like you know, we've made money from making theatre, which isn't the smartest thing in the world to do, but certainly not during a global pandemic. There's not theatre, so at some point, just there's no more money left, and, and also that comes at a time when. People need us to go back to doing what we we're doing before because there isn't another cultural uh, offer in this area. It's our job to do that. And so, one of the one of our big risks in our three-column format that we were talking about before is: Do you think they'll hate us as much for closing a food bank as they loved us when we opened one? Which is, um, which I think, I think, yeah, I think, I think that's true. And we'll have, and again, we'll have to kind of own the consequences of that. The thing that, um, the thing that because we're asked a lot why we set up a food bank and I, and I said well because we can put shows on but if you're too hungry to leave the house then then those shows feel like an act of aggression and that feels as true now as it ever did so we're still incredibly interested in and care about the health outcomes of our of our community and we have 300 percent domestic violence rates which just is gobsmacking and, and somebody at some point has to be asking why and what to do about that apart from just going around and slapping them all around but yeah it's just it's just maddening these these and so we've been looking at uh, and the answer isn't to make a piece of theater about any of this <laughs> this is the, this we know to be true it's like oh they don't need to play about this but so we're looking at how do we change what we do and how we do it so that as we're making theater because that's what people pay us to do we are also trying to touch some of these uh issues so whether that be cooking classes here whether that be shows with food whether where everybody gets to eat at all the shows or whether that be a residency with a local primary school so that we so we're we're doing what we were just talking about trying to get upstream and saying well hang on a minute how do we whether it be um, a series of, of leadership courses for the local residents to encourage them to just become governors and uh, uh and sit on boards and have that power that, that the people like that are normally locked out of these are all things that we're interested in that all feel like a good use of our theatrical skills at the same time we still need to be a public affair company because those are the reasons why uh, the people who fund us want us here and so our next challenge is how do we do both mm. and and how having run a food bank for 16 months do you go back to the frippery of making plays that make people laugh and smile and cry because it, quite frankly it doesn't feel as important as dropping off white bread Mm. but you need both you need both otherwise it is a really bleak world um and i don't know the and i don't know the balance yet because we're still doing it like we're just the food bank is slowly but surely closing over the next two months and the rest of it tomorrow we open the pub and the rest of it blossoms open we'll start our uh, we start a football club which will be announced shortly the hobbit more fc a women's football club and a men's football club because there's no organized sport and actually that's one of the big you know white bread turns out really bad for you you don't run around afterwards so you know all of these things are our thinking and i think we'll approach it like we always do which is in action right we'll crack on we'll accept the football club and maybe that's going to be the answer and if it's not then we'll find another answer um but keep keep working the problem i think until the answer presents itself 
sounds like you're in a real space of uh, innovation in terms of working out how these two things can be like coupled together. Hopefully, hopefully. I mean, we're going to get this right or we're going to get this wrong as always. When we start anything, I was like, well, this is going to be amazing or we will come up with a new plan. And uh, mm. We're still at the very hopeful stage, so fingers crossed. Well, I think it sounds like even if you get it wrong initially, I'm sure you'll get it right eventually. Yes, that's that's the hope. Yes. <laughs> it's been really great talking to you. It's so, so interesting and so refreshing in so many ways just to hear someone talk so frankly and really see the the bigger picture but also the the fact that you need to address the problems right on the ground and hear from people and prioritize people's voices and their experiences but um yeah it's an interesting cultural space that um is being navigated at the moment by the sounds of it for everyone and in so many ways yeah, yeah absolutely thank you man i've really enjoyed talking to you A huge thank you to Alan Lane, Artistic Director of Slung Low. I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation with Alan, who spoke with such passion and determination. It seems that the upcoming challenges for Slung Low are mirrored within the charity sector. Seen in the huge social issues that need vital support and attention, even more so as we move out of the pandemic. Whether you're constrained by finances, access, expectation or gatekeepers, it seems that innovation, both through trial and error, as well as creating spaces for voices, is key to moving forwards. The need to know and understand our why will allow for agendas of EDI to progress with a greater sense of urgency. And it seems the political spaces that charities are moving within, whether with intention or not, seem to be shifting and leaving us with no choice but to stand up and be counted. It's becoming more and more evident that we cannot go back to what things were like before the pandemic. In some ways, it seems that as a society, people now seem to know too much and want to do something about this. Alan expressed this when talking about the challenges of making theatre, well, going back to, and the careful balance to be struck between providing desired services, such as theatre, and the relief and power it holds, alongside not turning a blind eye to all the struggle and challenges our neighbours are managing. The principles of really listening and then simply doing what is asked rather than what we think should be done is a lesson we should endeavour not to forget. And finally, the need to be accountable and transparent in the work we do is vital alongside a human acknowledgement that it won't always be easy and there will be challenges, but it is worth it. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors, our platinum sponsor, Charity People, for enabling us to share insights, expertise and best practice across our sector, Giant Squid Audio Labs for sponsoring our podcast kit, Magda Axmit for our beautiful website, Check it out at charitychat.org.uk and Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and playing us out now. That's all for me. I'll speak to you soon.